This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Uh, welcome to the library. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Kevin for putting on this event. This is uh, World War Z and International Relations. So today marks the um, end of our fall uh, One Book, One College programs on the novel World War Z by Max Brooks. Uh, this this novel is a rich novel in a lot of ways, and we went to our administration and said, hey, we want to do um, a whole year's worth of stuff on zombies, and they said, are you crazy? And then we said, well, look at this book, and we outlined all the different ways that zombies uh, can can teach us things. And so we've had panels on with mathematicians looking at zombies and how a zombie outbreak would go in relation to, like, real-life pandemics. We've had artists and writers in talking about Zombies is a form of, of narrative and thinking about, like, gothic and horror fiction and the ways that zombies have been used um, with that. We've had um, literary scholars in looking at World War Z as a, a, a piece of fiction and what it teaches us about, um, you know, the, the, the idea of the metaphor and, and where it could go. And today we wanted to get to World War Z and the one with international relations. And one of the great things with this book is that each chapter of the book covers a different country. So kind of a thought experiment, if there was a zombie outbreak in Cuba, what would happen? If there was a zombie outbreak in Japan, what would happen? Russia, United States. And it kind of, the, the great thing with this book is each chapter, you show up in a new place in the world and think about the people who were there, the history that is there, how would the zombie outbreak move across the world? So it starts in China. Um, we move in, we talk about the United States in the, in the book. Um, really interesting commentary on Israel and Palestine in the book. We move to different parts of the country. Germany plays a key factor. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. And I said to Kevin, hey, would you be interested in doing something about this? And he kind of said, um, sure, maybe. But then as he got in the book, I think the light bulb went out and said, hey, this is a rich text that hits a lot of different areas of the globe and does this thought experiment. So with that, I want to say thanks to Kevin. Thanks to everyone who's coming. Um, we do have some events next week, internship panel in the library next week, and also um, we are doing our TLC, Teaching Learning Community event, next week. But that's it for my commercials. Thank you to Kevin. I'll turn it over to you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Troy. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks to Amanda and Multimedia for capturing us today. And thank you for all of you for being here today. Uh, Troy uh, did invite me last spring, I think it was, and uh, talked a little bit about the selection of the book uh, for One Book, One College this year, uh, World War Z. I was very unfamiliar with this book, and uh, I'm very unfamiliar with zombies and the zombie culture. So I was a little bit hesitant uh, at first in thinking about, you know, Troy and I collaborate quite often with Global and Diversity Education, which I'm the coordinator of and uh, One Book, One College, and uh, I was a little bit, I was thinking I had a few ideas of how there could be some links between the two, um, and so this summer, I took it upon myself to uh, read this book this June, and it was a very good read, a, a quick read. How many of you have read World War Z? No, it looks like a, around 10 people, maybe, 5 to 10 people. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie? About uh, twice that number, about uh, 20. I have not seen the movie. Uh, but in reading this book this summer, it was uh, really evident to, evident to me uh, real quick uh, how much my discipline that I, t I teach every semester, international relations, and uh, how much there was a link between the book, World War Z, and international relations. So I often ask my students to take the book that we uh, have assigned to us and try to apply the book and some of the key theories in international relations to various content, sometimes articles, sometimes documentaries. And it's a, it's a great application way of kind of learning your content better. So I basically tried to take that assignment on myself of taking the World War Z book and trying to look through the lens of international relations. And uh, today I'm going to uh, give some of the examples of the linkages that I was able to draw, and then also talk uh, about some maybe current events, some issues that may tie into the, the, the themes in the book and the international relations paradigms and, and concepts that I'm going to start off with. 
and then open it up to you guys, uh, see what kind of questions or comments that you have. Uh, I would like to read a few of my favorite passages within this book and maybe talk about the, the current significance of this. So, with that in mind, I wanted to give you uh, a few resources that if you're interested in this, I had overheard a couple of my skeptical students thinking about uh, how could zombies in this book possibly relate to this class. And as I already shared, I was a little uh, skeptical myself. But uh, I came across one of, the most, one of the more prominent international relations scholars, Daniel Dresner. He's actually written a book on this. And I wanted to share a few resources that I have. If you're interested, uh, let me know. This is in, it's available to you on Moraine Valley's Blackboard page through Global Diversity Education. But uh, there's Daniel Dresner wrote a, a book, Theories of International Relations, International Politics, and Zombies. He's had several articles in a prominent uh, journal, a foreign policy journal, uh, and he also has some really interesting YouTube videos. So he can, he can really give this talk a lot better than I could, but if you're interested, he has a lot of great applications of the international relations theories to, uh, the, to, to zombies in general and even brings up this book quite a bit. Okay, so... Some of my students are here today, some of my international relations students, so some of this will be familiar to them. But uh, one of the key things, especially in the first part of almost any international relations textbook, is the idea of globalization or that we have issues that are transnational in nature. That is, the issue or problem does not respect state borders. And when I say state, it's the typical term that many people refer to is a country. But can you think of any problems that exist in this world that don't necessarily recognize national boundaries or borders and influence more than one state at the same time? Yeah, Maddie? Pollution, some of these environmental problems, global warming, climate change, Eric? Diseases, sometimes pandemics and how quickly that they can spread. They're not recognizing borders. War. Oftentimes we see conflict that may start within one state, quickly emerge outside that region. Uh, you know, some of my students have been talking about Syria and the influence that that's had on Lebanon and even Iraq. And you can see all kinds of different issues like that. Terrorism, uh, the global economy, it, the list goes on and on. And quite frankly, many of our key issues and problems today uh, are transnational in nature. So right off the bat, we have this idea of transnational or interdomestic issues. Now, connecting that to zombies. Zombies lack human qualities such as self-awareness, compassion, reason. In the modern society we live in, it's marked by this increasing interconnectedness, interdependence often referred to as globalization. Through this lens of international relations, we can view zombies as a transnational in issue as the problem or rapid spread of zombies don't recognize international borders. And I think Troy touched on this at the beginning with his opening comments, that really had some of these, some of the states that he mentioned, had they coordinated, had they worked together um, quickly and comprehensively, the spread of zombies may not have been as uh, problematic and perhaps their cooperation would have been led to a, a solution uh, in dealing with these issues. So zombies can be related to pandemics and other outbreaks that can lead to breakdowns in global order. We've had these in the past, uh, just a few of the major ones. Spanish flu, uh, about the 1918 uh, time period, uh, Black Plague in the 14th century, where just huge portions of, of, pe of people throughout the world were killed. Now, directly connected to transnational issues, these issues that don't respect borders, it makes it hard for any one state to comprehensively and swiftly address any, pro any of these problems. It almost results in states' inability to deal with these problems. So domestically, within one state, you may think uh, your leaders are you're, you're holding them responsible for keeping you safe against terrorists or making the economy better. But as we stated earlier, these issues are transnational. It requires the cooperation, coordination quite quite often with multiple states. So individual states are almost insufficient 
and able to comprehensively address these problems. Some of my students know the, the international systems best referred to is uh, what we characterize as anarchy. But what does that mean? Does it mean chaos? What does anarchy mean in the international system? So for some of my students, this takes us back to chapter one, which would be in you know, mid-August. So maybe this has uh, left their state of mind. But can anybody help me out? What's anarchy in the international system? No world government. We have no higher authority than states. States like the United States or Germany, Italy, Brazil are the final sovereign. We do have a United Nations. We have uh, international institutions, but they do not have final authority over states. So in this system of anarchy, the states are the final power. This makes comprehensively addressing international or transnational issues complicated. This connects directly to some of our, our, our major theories or paradigms in international relations. So uh, I was going to refrain from a, a PowerPoint presentation, uh, so bear with me here. I'll try to give a, a brief overview of our two or three major theories in international relations. And they really are, um, you know, they work directly and in, incompatible in, in with one another. You'll see kind of the... Uh, contrasting principles. The first one, liberalism. And for those of you who have read the book, I, I, I urge you or challenge you to try to be thinking about World War Z and how this may relate to liberalism. But liberalism, and this isn't domestic, you know, conservatives, liberals, and, and U.S. politics, but liberal international theory shares this idea of idealism, that the world can be a better place, that we have shared interests across societies, across cultures. Um, and that we can cooperate to solve problems. We can work together. We call this multilateralism, working with uh, multiple states or working with intergovernmental organizations like the United Nations. We can work together to make problems better. So we talked about pollution. We can coordinate and cooperate on these issues and, and maybe limit some of our CO2, CO2 emissions or, or other activities like that. Uh, there's a, a prominence of soft power, which I'll get to a little bit later. With liberals and soft power, it's not intangible. It's, it's, it's often referred to as people power, sometimes culture, sometimes education, our ability to get what we want without using force, and uh, open economy, free trade, open borders. Uh, and, and thinking about that, open borders and, and free trade and... and uh, how that could relate to zombies and, and World War Z. And I'll just take a moment and see if anybody can draw any connections with liberalism and World War Z as best as I've described the key principles of liberalism so far. Any suggestions? Yeah. The uh, smuggling of the refugees across borders, they were working together to transport, transport people. Okay, very good. The smuggling of refugees. Uh, and, and again, if you have an, more of an open border policy, that's going to make it much easier for the spread of zombies across borders. That there was a hand over here. Yeah, Carrie. Working together to um, solve the zombie problem. Okay, working together to solve the, the zombie problem. And, and some of the passages I'll get to later, that just didn't happen in World War Z to a large extent. Collective security is a key principle of liberalism, maintaining peace and prevention of war through united uh, actions. Page 149 of World War Z talks a little bit about collectivism. And uh, I'm going to directly quote the book here on page 149. At a time when everybody was pulling together, helping each other out, working to protect and take care of one another, the worst thing you could do to somebody was to march up to them in public square with the giant poster reading, I stole my neighbor's firewood. Shame's a powerful weapon. But it depended on everybody else doing the right thing. Nobody is above the law. And seeing a senator given 15 lashes for his involvement in war profiteering did more to curb crime than a cop on every street corner. And again, really con uh, connecting to the idea of collectiveness, collect 
collective security. I thought that was a pretty powerful passage in in how you get people to work together, that it wasn't necessarily laws, it wasn't necessarily security or a cop on every corner. So there was a collection at the very beginning of this book. There's a collection of interviews of survivors of this zombie apocalypse. And does anybody remember who compiled the um, interviews of the zombie apocalypse? I know this is challenging. Some of you may have read this like I did in the summer, early June or a long time ago. Some of you haven't read it at all. It was actually a United Nations post-war commission, which, as many of my students know, we've been looking at IGOs, intergovernmental organizations, again, consistent with this idea of liberalism and the prominence of global institutions. Um, global institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, or even free trade agreements like NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement. And uh, I, initially, when I was thinking of those institutions, how many of you have heard of those before? You know, getting about 50, maybe 10 to 15 hands. How many of you really know what those institutions are about or how they operate? One to two and a half hands, maybe. The, my initial thought when, when I was invited to participate in this discussion was thinking of some of these, the way the global economy works and some of these institutions like the IMF, World Bank, uh, are really almost zombie-like, that they're difficult to fully understand, they're non-transparent, uh, we don't know the way that they really operate and the impact that they have on the economy and on individual states and on individual people, the relevance to my life, um, they're distant, and uh, if possible, I'll get back to that on the, uh, later on. Okay, uh, 20 minutes in, and I still haven't mentioned realism. And realism is by far the most prominent theory in international relations. It's the oldest, going all the way back to Thucydides a couple thousand years ago. In contrast to uh, liberalism, it's got a very negative, pessimistic view of human nature. Survival of the fittest states or countries should pursue their own interests at the expense of uh, values. Allies should be flexible. And really, you should only work together with other states if it's enhancing your own national security. Uh, some states will have more power than others. Um, and you only work with these other states when it does promote your national security. So when I was thinking about this, one of the first applications to the book I was thinking about was the first recorded infection. Does anybody recall from the book? I think they called it patient number zero. Zero? China. It was China very forthcoming. They, I think the book mentioned that they... This, it was a little bit confusing, but patient number zero wasn't necessarily chronologically the first patient, right? But the first recorded one, and the idea that there had actually most likely been some previous to this one in China. And when I read that passage, I was thinking back, there's all kinds of examples like this, but sometimes states are not always so transparent or forthcoming with intelligence or information that could make them either look weak or that could get into the hands of uh, outside actors or other states that could use that against them. Uh, my class, I think you guys recall a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Interpol and why many, many states don't want to cooperate or give information to this international organization, Interpol. Um, but I was thinking back to 2003 and bird flu and the SARS outbreak in China there was multiple cases in China, Indonesia, and Thailand. In, in each of these individual states had hid um, some of the initial outbreak before um, officially reporting it. Uh, another part of realism, a more updated view of realism, is neorealism. Neorealism, the primary goal of the state is survival. Uh, survival, not just power and self-interest, as traditional realists would say. So Troy uh, Swanson had referred to Israel and Palestine in an application of World War Z. Uh, in the book, Israel abandons the Palestinian territories, and they have this quarantine 
And they closed its borders to everybody but uninfected Jews in Palestine, Palestinians. And I was thinking through with the lens of neorealism that this really is a strategy in line with neorealism and that survival being the most important. They had this really dramatic policy change that if you were to apply that in modern uh, current events, you couldn't imagine Israel engaging in a policy like that. Um, but through the lens of neorealism, it really is consistent with that idea of state survival being prominent. Okay, so I'm going to move on to just a few concepts uh, and then open it up, see if you guys have any questions, comments, or if you can think of any current modern-day uh, transnational issues that may relate in, uh, to either international relations or to World War Z. Uh, my students know that in Chapter 4, in most international relations textbooks, there's a big discussion of power, state power. And there's different ways that we can assess this. Earlier, I talked about soft power, which is consistent with liberalism. But there's this, also this idea of hard power. And uh, hard power is measurable. It's something that you can um, use to uh, measure your state's power. It's quantifiable, military power, economic power, um, even looking at statistics with education. Page 139 uh, of hard power. It was slow going. Air traffic was non-existent. Roads and rail lines were in shambles. And fuel, good Lord, you couldn't find a tank of gas between Blaine, Washington and Imperial Beach, California. Add to this the fact that pre-war America not only had a computer-based infrastructure, but that such a method also allowed for severe levels of economic segregation. You would have entire suburban neighborhoods of upper-middle-class upper professionals, none of whom have possessed even the basic know-how to replace a cracked window. And I was thinking about, in the case of the United States in this book, they had this immense national uh, advantage of hard power, but the infrastructure uh, wasn't necessarily there. And then going back to soft power with liberalism, and this is one of my favorite passages of the book, Page 138 to 139, uh, again, the idea of soft power, they're talking about talent, describes the potential workforce, its level of skilled labor, and how that labor could be utilized effectively. To be perfectly candid, our supply of talent was at a critical low. Ours was a post-industrial or service-based economy, so complex and a highly specialized that each individual could only function within the confines of its narrow, compartmentalized structure. You would have seen some of the careers listed on our employment census, everyone with some version of an executive, a representative, an analyst, or a consultant, all perfectly suited to the pre-war world, but all totally inadequate for the present crisis. What we needed was carpenters, masons, machinists, gunsmiths, the first labor survey stated clearly that over 65% of our present civilian workforce were classified F6, possessing no valued vocation. We required a massive job retraining program. In short, we needed to get a lot of white collars dirty. I don't know if any of you uh, who read the book, if that passage stood out, or now that hearing uh, me read it to you, what do you think about that? And again, thinking about how that may connect the, the modern society and global economy and the idea of, of what traits we actually have, of, of what the use that they may have in the global economy, and how useful these traits might be in this situation of a major international crisis. Yeah. Yeah, so the common is being surprised how the status of jobs essentially flipped. The generally res most respected high-class jobs, you know, stereotyping here of lawyers, doctors, and so forth, um, maybe not having as much wealth, especially all these various forms of executives. 
that may be highly paid and respected in a normal society and economy, but in a crisis economy, it's really the blue-collar or lower, you know, maybe middle-class jobs traditionally viewed that are much more prominent, that have value and importance in a state status. Other comments? Questions so far? Yes, sir. Can, can we use a sure. mic so that we can get it on the stream? Yeah, it shows like how uh, the advancement of technology like made everyone lazy. Like engineers and people like that back in the day would be able to actually build things, but now they only have computers to build them for them. So the people using the machines don't really know what to do with just the materials. They need the machine to operate, but in a like world-ending situation, the machines aren't working. Or I'm not really sure how it goes in the movie cause I, or the show or the book because I didn't read it, but sounds like they needed more laborers, people that were hands-on. So those of you, were you able to hear the comment? Yes? How do you, some, some of you did read the book, or based on the description that Troy gave and some of the selections so far, how might that relate, uh, not only to the book, but again, imagining another major crisis instead of a zombie invasion, but some other similar type of major crisis how could um, the, the previous comment connect? Yes, in the back. And, and please, could you hold yep. for... Hang on a second. Collect your thoughts for one moment while we get a, a microphone back to you, please. Yeah, uh, reading this section, it made me kind of think of the World War II workforce and how we were just cranking out all you know the tanks we needed and we were using our resources uh, intelligently and how... I mean, now, like uh, the other comment said, it's kind of all just like the machines working it, and we don't really have the people that we used to that know how to operate them and know how to do it just using the raw materials. So, like, if there was a World War III, that would be another case where it could be like a zombie apocalypse where we would need those skilled people again. Yeah, and that the without computers without the reliance or almost dependence, it seems like, on technology and computers, if those were to go out, then a lot of the skills that we think we have may not have that same worth. And our worth or connection to be able to contribute to the economy might be limited. And uh, I'll hopefully come back to that a little bit later. Yeah. Well, it made me think about when the auto industry was getting ready to fail and we were deciding if we should bail out the auto industry you know, on a federal level or not and all the arguments against that we don't need to spend that money but if you don't have the auto industry you know, infrastructure you can't make tanks or whatever I mean it, this idea that we don't need labor force anymore is kind of, kind of scary because we do need I mean we need people who can build roads and we need people who can do lights and plumbing and all these things. And that's the thing that I like the most about this book. Um, when I was in college, I had a sociology professor who told me once that if everybody had a PhD, we'd still need a plumber yeah. and we'd still need a garbage man. And he was very, very right. You know, everyone's got a purpose and yeah. we should, you know, be, you know, very much aware of that. So. Yeah, excellent comment. I completely agree. And it was a similar passage that really struck me in the book. Again, the importance and if you're going to ramp up for this wartime, an all-out war, war economy of everybody trying to build uh, to the military machine, how we may be lacking in that, especially at, as some of the production jobs, manufacturing jobs, in some of the developed states like the United States have been either outsourced or eliminated through automa automation and technology. We, we still don't produce things. Yeah, but let me add the counter-argument, and that is, you know, you don't get um, iPhones and iPads if everyone's growing their own corn, right? I mean, I, I, I love that section of the book, and I think Max Brooks, I don't think he's making a criticism. I think he's pointing out a trade-off. We're making a trade-off in our society that we are taking brain power and devoting it to making, you know, innovations and in technology and driving forward with that. But by, by making that technologically advanced driving economy, we're giving up something. What we're giving up is that I don't have time to learn how to slaughter cows and pigs and grow corn as, you know, maybe other generations did because I have to do my job here at Google or whatever, right? 
So I don't see it as everyone should know how to do this stuff, but that we've made a choice, whether we know it or not. And therefore, we're at risk because of that choice. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too. And I, I think in my reading of it, I agree with that uh, uh, counter, counter view. It's just in this major crisis. So, again, if you haven't read the book or familiar with the zombie situation, I think to my students I've given hypothetical examples of this major cyber attack that cripples the infrastructure, especially taking out the power grids and to where you know, we don't have our electronics anymore. So then the iPhones and computers and everything else that we're reliant on to either do our jobs or in some cases have our identity is completely lost. And then, again, and you're in a major, major crisis. So being able to, you know, on the trivial side, check your Facebook updates. But, uh, you know, to do your job, and in case of somebody like me where all of my banking is online, my ability to have no money in my wallet, right, no cash in my wallet right now, everything is done electronically, that this could create a lot of panic and anxiety amongst world citizens. And, and then again, not being able to have those basic skills of survival and knowing how, you know, they talked about a re-education campaign, right? Uh, of trying to develop some of these. People don't know how to start a fire. People don't know how to use a, a weapon, people, you know, and so forth. And I'll get to this comment in just one moment while the microphone okay. works its way over. Here I come. Regarding the whole uh, cyber attack thing, I actually, I actually think that, uh, like, high altitude nuclear detonation, which causes an EMP, that would cause similar effects, and I think that would probably be more likely to happen than cyber, uh, large-scale cyber attacks, and you only need to send one bomb up there by a few people, and it takes much more, many more to develop such a major cyber attack. Yeah, I think we can all use our imagination of different ways that this type of a crisis could occur, and I think this book helps us with that. You know, again, I think my bias coming into this book is I don't care about zombies or the pop culture of zombies. I was really not that interested in it, but it helped me think of all of these different types of scenarios that could lead to that, not necessarily doomsday, but major crisis, just flipping the normal rules of our orderly society upside down. Yeah. Here. I just wanted to add with like, with the book though, it's like it shows us how um, like society will be with that, but it also brings the fact that we do adapt to it, and I think that's like really important when thinking like, oh, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have my phone. But it shows that as, like, when society works together, we do find a way to adapt to the situations we're present with. And like in society now, we adapt to the changes and the new technology and that sort of thing. So I like how um, Brooks like, really shows that like, we still are able to adapt to the disaster that is occurring, whether it be like, going back to starting fires and that type of stuff. Another great point. And I know Troy and the library has had other events on this kind of collectivism and our ability to work together. But it seemed like in the book there was multiple examples of, of getting down, and for my students using some of our international relations lingo, of the sub-state level of analysis or differences between us within a state. So it could be based on religion, ethnicity, or even nationalism. Are we going to cooperate with the Pakistanis? Uh, are we going to cooperate with the other um, or even within the United States, right? Uh, I think politics uh, in the present society, uh, there's a lot of conflict and, and there isn't a lot of cooperation going on on key issues domestically. And that's when we're supposed to be on the same team. And now imagine this kind of us versus them scenario. And I know that there's real life examples in here of, of creating strategies to allow some people to, to basically be decoys for the zombies. And maybe in this type of a, a scenario, it's hard to say how humans would, would the best of us come out? Uh, would the worst of us in kind of individualism and survival of the fittest, the realist kind of perspective? Um, or would, would the capacity for humans to cooperate um, take place? Um, interested in if you guys have perspectives or opinions on that, Eric? Hang on, I'm coming. Yeah, I think it 
Microphone, microphone. Um, I think that really plays in a lot to uh, the war on terror. Um, like, uh, for example, the two nations, uh, the two main focuses of the war on terror are Afghanistan and Iraq. And, uh, you know, they see a lot of them, the insurgents, you know, as us being invaders. And you have to admire their ingenuity uh, because they do live in a very, like, very non-modern-day uh, society. But they're still making these cell phone bombs and... Uh, these, you know, shape-shifting projectiles that blow through our armor, and they really kept our military complex on its toes trying to keep up with them. I mean, on one, on one hand, I mean, these people are, the insurgents are very vulgar, vulgar people, but on the other hand, again, you got to admire their ingenuity to keep up with our armor and keep us on our toes. I mean, you know, Eric, in my next uh, bullet point here, I was thinking of asymmetrical warfare. And I know in the book, the, the major power of a, a United States you think would have the capacity, and almost they really had the uh, arrogance that this zombie threat wasn't that big of a deal, and you know they have all of this, you know, uh, superiority with technology and, and hard power that that they could take on these uh, the zombies. But um, the traditional warfare didn't really the traditional rules of warfare didn't apply. I know you were talking about Afghanistan, perhaps Iraq, or even going back to Vietnam. We've looked at some of these examples, how you know, the soft power having the culture of even willing to fight to the last man, or just not by following these traditional rules of warfare, that um, it can really create an advantage for seemingly the under, uh, undermatched. Um, and I know when I was thinking about symmetrical, asymmetrical warfare in the book, I wasn't necessarily just thinking of that example. It's trying to think outside the box and applying other types of issues to apply. And you think about uh, climate change and, and some of these maybe major threats that could be facing the planet. And whether you think, oh, we have technology or we have the ability to undo or respond to these, you know, if the earth gets a little bit warmer or if these uh, climate patterns change, then we can do this. And I think you, you, you're coming in with the mindset that, what's worked in the past or maybe our superiority in, of, of technology can help us, but maybe sometimes it, it can't. Uh, that's something to consider. And I, I keep looking at my book because I left my copy at home today. This is the library's copy, but it, I, I still can't find it, but I'm going to hope that my page reference is true. But on page 50, uh, my students know that in chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 3 with levels of analysis, we talk about cognitive dissonance. And this is a term that applies to psychology. It's often used. But basically, in this, in this on page 50, they're talking about they couldn't handle the truth. And it, it, remember, it, it makes me think of that famous line of uh, a few good men that you can't handle the truth. And I, I don't know with my audience how many people are familiar with this movie that, that, that dates me, but it's this, it's this powerful point in the, in the book about whether we can actually handle the truth. And it seemed like they weren't able to convey the seriousness of this threat, in this case the zombies. But again, I'm, I'm trying to make you guys think that this could be other scenarios, potentially climate or you know, a cyber attack or you know, some major pandemic uh, virus or something that we don't even know about yet that can easily spread in this very interconnected, globalized society. Other questions, comments, reactions so far? Say, micro microphone coming around. It, it's a rule of the microphone that no matter where I stand, the question's on the other side of the room. I have not read the book and I have not watched the movie. I think I'm now more interested in doing one or, or the other. Um, he, here's an example, uh, to be realistic, um, show of hands. What do you think is the world, world's currency right now? The U.S. dollar, right? Trade and exchange around the world, they're actually going back to the U.S. dollar. What happens if the U.S. dollar, because of so much debt that we have, and China is not going to underwrite anymore, I guess, in the future, that is going to be a pandemonium. What do you think would be the impact 
in our states, in our little businesses, if the dollar doesn't mean a lot more than it was 20 years ago? Audience, I'll leave it to you guys. There was actually one of my students who had submitted an assignment that really was similar to the, to the last comment about some of my students. I asked them to think of a current uh, event, situation in the world that could be transnational, that is influencing more than one state and the impact it could have. And that same topic was selected about currency and currency devaluation and what that could really do to the global economy and then obviously the quality of life that we have and our ability to work and take care of our family and so forth. Uh, yeah, I just think that um, with the change in currency uh, comes with the shift of balance of powers in the world. And we won't, if, if that happens and the U.S. dollar, you know, is completely devastated and is not used anymore, uh, we could see, you know, possibly China emerging as the new, the new power to, you know, say what's, what's right and what's wrong and, you know, who not to invade or who to invade, cause, all because of that power of currency. And, and it'll tie in with their military capacity as well. Yeah. So if we think of the zombie apocalypse as a just transformational change, what I think we've been trying to do is think of other transformational changes that could just really upend the world as we know it, change the power balance throughout the world. Those of you who read the book, what was one of the key powers after the zombie apocalypse and towards the end of the book, some of the states that survived and thrived and Cuba. Cuba as a major uh, international power. Can you imagine it? Right? You have to sometimes think outside the box and reimagine and they made a really compelling case based on trade um, and other uh, geopolitical uh, uh, factors that really bolstered the case of Cuba. Other questions? Comments? You guys just really want me to read more from the book from you, don't you? I know you're waiting on that. Uh, to add with the currency and uh, how that might uh, affect everything, it could be with like our resources and uh, money, uh, like how the, the the value of money is, won't be as much as it used to be, like the dollar. So food prices could skyrocket as well as gas prices. And then the daily needs that we need uh, on a daily basis will just be very hard on us and then that leads into uh, where minimum wage stands at and how much people make uh, at work. So I think that would affect a little bit. Yeah. Uh, that could have a change. So uh, another comment about the interconnections. I've had these talks before of trying to think of how an event in some seemingly far off place and the relevance it may have on your life. Again, that's a textbook transnational issue uh, in a, a drought or wildfire, let's say a drought uh, in Russia or a major flood in Pakistan and how that could have an impact on not just your life but on international relations. And you think of food prices. Now many of the, you know, a place like Russia that produces a lot of wheat, they no longer have the capacity to produce, have the same output. This increases food prices. People have made this argument for, for, for major changes in, uh, you know, connected to the Arab Spring and some of the unrest we've seen there connected to food prices. Uh, when people don't have the capacity to feed themselves to make their basic uh, need to get their basic needs met, see uh, a lot of unrest and political change in the process. There's a question. Yeah. Uh, it was really about the money thing again. Um, I mean, like, I think a lot of times America takes for granted the fact that a lot of times because people do trade on our money, other countries, and we are the reserve currency of the world, is basically brand recognition of we're the Nike swish of uh, world money. And, you know, people want to brand it, not so much how we're doing now, but because of how we're doing and the belief that we will get back to it. And really that they trade only on the fact that we have, you know, this faith, that they have this faith, we'll go back to it. And I think that we're in, it could be a lot of problems if we had nothing to give back to them. If we did, like, the default because of the bond issue earlier this month, then we could be heading for a disaster that 
could be like this if it was something like that. I know when Troy first approached me, I think some of my, without reading the book, my initial um, examples were connected to the economy. And do we have a zombie currency? Do we have, you know, uh, these zombie financial institutions that are seemingly, if you look at them on paper and their transactions, how are they still afloat? How are they still um, in business? And, and if the Cuba example from the book, so that Cuba survives because it's isolated from the rest of the world, what are the countries that are really self-sufficient? Is it if, if the U.S. dollar tanks, all you know, Japan, Europe, um, as Canada, as they're connected to our dollar, do they come with? And is it really a country that is you know subsistence agriculture right now that we look at as you know a third world country? Maybe that's the new world leader that emerges, right? Like, you start looking at some states that have uh, natural resources advantages, uh, access to water, uh, arable land for agriculture. Uh, to, to lead to their dependent or self-sustaining ability, it's interesting to consider. Maybe Canada is the world power of, of having the largest access to freshwater resources. Well, I think these issues happen a lot in apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic literature. I don't know if you've ever read The Handmaid's Tale, but this happens there as well. But the money is actually turned off. Like everyone uses debit cards, what we would think of as debit cards, but they have these little tiny little chip cards. And all of the women's cards are turned off. And so they're no longer able to use their money. And that's how they're able to, you know, create this sort of Orwellian situation in that novel. But it all goes back to the currency and lack of it. And it's also a very interesting situation because they're able to actually target the women in the story. It's a great piece, written by a Canadian. So. <laughs> I have to add that to my list. Other comments, questions? Um, since um, realism is the most prominent theory in international affairs, um, should it be abandoned to governments since it seems to cause a lot of issues, especially with wars? Realism doesn't have to lead to wars. National interests and promoting your national security at all costs. Sometimes I think there's a lot of traditional realists, old school realists, who might see just for uh, recent examples, the 2003 Iraq War as not conducive to state interests, as potentially a blunder, of, and uh, you know that may, sometimes you need to be uh, more strategic and selective in your application of military force only when your core national security interests and core foreign policy goals are at stake do you use military force. There are I, and, the, and the guy I was referring to earlier, uh, Daniel Dresner, he applies neoconservatism, which isn't technically a theory of international relations, but um, that mindset may argue for application of military force if it can promote our ideals. So, for example, the 2003 Iraq War, getting rid of a bad, awful leader, Saddam Hussein, who, and maybe uh, allowing the rise of freedom and democracy and free markets to take place, uh, could be a, uh, a good use of military force. So it isn't necessarily that realist. There's many realists who criticize the 2003 Iraq War and are hesitant, maybe more modern examples, to apply military force in Syria, for example. Um, but if, I know as our classes grappled with, what if every state acted like a realist? Um, which brings me back to one of my other favorite passages of the book, and I think this goes from page 148 to 149. And in bold, I have uh, some of the concepts from international relations of soft power, identity, and nationalism. But the passage is, the president said to me, this is the only time for high ideals, because those ideals are all that we have. We aren't just fighting for our physical survival, but we're fighting for the survival of our civilization. We don't have the luxury of world, world pillars. We don't have a common heritage. We don't have a millennial of history. All we have is the dreams and promises that binds us together. And I know many of your comments were kind of getting at that ability, can we work together? But if you don't have that shared history and identity, it seems to shed doubt, especially if there's more of those nationalistic kind of uh, impulses that us versus them. 
Sure. Can I add a comment from, so from last week we had a panel on mathematicians, which you can watch on um, YouTube, where mathematicians took a zombie outbreak and ran the numbers. If this happened, how quickly would it take for the, the whole world to become zombies? And almost mathematicians across the country that have studied this agree with these big pandemics that really spread quickly that, you know, we're kind of dead meat. And that the best option we have is to act early. There's no equilibrium point where, especially with humans and zombies, where we can live together. Someone's got to win, either humans or zombies. And it looks bad for the humans if you run the numbers, except if we can intervene in the first hours and days of a real outbreak. And so adding to this with this conversation about international relations, it actually is frightening to me where if people won't, if they only act out of their self-interest, can, could we really get a world consensus to take action in ways that you would? And it, from what I'm hearing from your class and perhaps from you is that um, probably not, right? And that's yeah. troublesome. And if you even look at like World War II, how long it took us to finally decide to intervene, um, it seems like um, let's hope that this zombie thing stays fiction. In fact, I just add to that, um, just thinking domestically in politics right now in the United States, key issues uh, that many people think should be addressed one way or the other, maybe immigration, maybe the budget, somebody was talking about national debts or spending taxes, uh, the debt ceiling, you know, a lot of uh, the, uh, how to promote economic growth, a lot of key issues that seemingly there should be some action on, right? But the ability to act on this, especially act quickly, is, I mean, has, has been proven and it doesn't happen. And that's with the 220-some years of shared history, seemingly all on the same team of, 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 of nationalism, the United States being together. So now imagine, you know, potentially up to 200 states throughout the world coordinating action seems to <laughs> – I have a pessimistic view of, of whether that could happen. It may be too late. And I think that mathematical model is very helpful, and I would urge all of you to watch the, or listen to the podcast. I think our, some of our global financial meltdowns, especially in the last decade or so, have indicated how quickly – a financial contagion can, can spread and, and one, you know, you have a, a situation in one country or with one bank and how quickly that can spread. Um, it, it's, I think that uh, our, the, the moral of the story is we do need to act quickly and, and collectively, um, but there seems to be some doubt on our capacity to do so. Question up here? Um, since we are depleting resources at an accelerated rate, um, is liber lib liber 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 I still can't. liberalism? Yes, is it a really realistic um, theory in a war in a material world? And you also address ideals. What if those ideals are wrong, and how do you determine what ideals are correct? A couple of, uh, a great question. It seems a couple of uh, initial reactions that I have to that. There is another theory that we could apply. What, you guys remember that other theory? I think sometimes as a faculty member, I just have to be validated that they, they remember. Constructivism. A, con a constructivist would really call into question whether there are shared values and really kind of deconstruct some of the interests that realists and liberals are taking uh, um, uh, as an assumption. The first part about liberals and ideals and whether this is depleting of resources, I think I heard. Yeah. So if states pursue their self-interest, whether that's China extracting resources from different states within the continent of Africa and, and the Far East, uh, what does that say about our capacity to uh, share and, and limit our use of, of world's resources? Uh, your first comment made me think of, I think it's the second Secretary General of the United Nations. And I can't pronounce his name. I wish I could show it to you. Um, but 
he basically said something to the effect of, and this is in the time period of the uh, Korean War. And still, the, uh, if you know anything about the United Nations, is after World War II, and the idea was you know, trying to prevent another world war from taking place and vast destruction and, and human death. And he made this point of the purpose isn't of the UN isn't to take us to heaven, but to save us from hell. And if you think about that, how many conflicts have either been prevented or limited, at least the scope, um, and maybe the examples of, you know, if you look at the European Union, some people would call this, uh, it's not functioning very well and there's all these criticisms, but you have states who are cooperating on a whole host of areas that have open borders that within the last 100 years fought each other to bloody battles multiple times, right? So sometimes we neglect all of the uh, positive developments in, in ways that we have cooperated, the way that we have worked together and limited violence and promoted trade and, and improved the quality of life um, in many ways. And United, United Nations would point to a lot of statistics of, of you know, I, um, one of you guys in the class had picked polio and polio in Syria as a, a current issue that we could apply to transnational issues. Polio, you know, and a lot of other major diseases and uh, viruses have been limited through coordination and, and development of UN programs and so forth. Poverty has been diminished. So there are successes, and despite all of the seemingly, uh, uh, we have a lot of room for growth and, and, and development, but there have been some successes. So he said get rid of the UN Security Council. Yeah, so the, the UN Security Council, where really any significant action from the United Nations has to go through the United Nations Security Council. And we have five permanent members. And again, the United Nations was created after World War II, so those five permanent members are really the major powers that emerged from World War II. And there's ten rotating members as well. But if, if you're one of those five permanent members, would you, according to the realists, uh, paradigm, would you give up your permanent status? And you have a veto. Uh, that means anything that gets voted on, you have the veto power. And if one, one member state vetoes of the five permanent members, then no action goes forward. So if any of you follow International Relations, the United Nations Security Council, not a lot gets done. Would, I mean, Valentine, I'd ask you, do you think that that's practical or realistic to, to, to ask Russia, China, France, United States, United Kingdom to give up that veto power. It, it could lead to a better world, but it could lead to their, any of those individual states' um, uh, national security interests being compromised as well. Their power status might be compromised. Did you have a question? Sir? I don't know, after hearing like the comments earlier about like this book and how it is, it just sounds like it's kind of like a pessimistic view on not just like it kind of down talks democracy, free like because you're saying that Cuba is one of the emerging powers, and that's not basically just because that they're an isolated like I mean from what I think I don't think it's just because they're an isolated like land they're in their own area. I think it's because they one they're like ran as a communist country. Two, they're more closed off to the world and they don't communicate with one another. So I think the book is actually supporting that you shouldn't really do these kind of things because, in a way, they survived this epidemic on their own without trying to take care of like other issues. Because one, with the whole democracy issue, their people aren't like democratic, so it's easier to control them than it is like a democratic nation. Because you tell someone in a democratic nation what to do, they're going to be like, why? Like, I mean, this isn't my view, but this is kind of what it seems like the book is saying. And does that well, really make sense? I, I, yeah, I, I think you admitted you haven't read the book, right? Okay. Well, I think that it kind of collapses what's here 
you know, like a real, you know, idea of democracies, but then it grows into something new and it changes and people do work together, but they also still maintain their individuality too. So I think it's both. I don't really think he's arguing that, you know, communism is the way to go, in my opinion. No, my, in my interpretation as well, and, and there's authoritative governments, you have a nuclear war with uh, India and Pakistan, uh, and, you know, Democracy is hard. We, we're, I think we've been talking about that earlier. I mean, our ability to come to a consensus to act on key issues domestically is limited. Um, but I would in, the, in the book, he goes out of his way to turn Cuba into a democracy, actually. So um, I don't think Max Brooks would agree with that. An interesting thing with this book, if you think about, like, The Walking Dead show, most zombie narratives aren't very pro-government. That the way that you live is by not having a government and that you're a rugged individual, kind of like a Western where this book actually goes out of its way to say the only way we can survive a zombie apocalypse is if we as a country and then as a world come together and fight the zombies. So he, this is actually a unique book for most zombie stories, just to give some zombie history. Yeah, and, you know, maybe that's a great way to end uh, since we are out of time. So if you haven't read the book, read the book. It's a quick read, and there's a lot of different ways it connects to all hosts of disciplines, modern life, future threats. So thanks again to Troy Thank for you. hosting. How about thanks a round of applause for Kevin? Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.